Thank you everyone for being here tonight. Uh, beautiful. Well, false doctrine is very dangerous. Every false doctrine is dangerous. Even what we might consider to be the slightest or most insignificant false doctrine is dangerous as it can open up the door for other false doctrine. And so we have to be on guard. We have to be on guard against false doctrine. Tonight I want to look at uh, the doctrine of irresistible grace. It is a popular doctrine, particularly popular around those who are Calvinistic in their understanding of the Bible. It is a doctrine that opens up the door for other false doctrines, and it is a dangerous doctrine. We want to look at it tonight. We have to be on guard, as I said, against false doctrine. And the only way that we can be on guard is by comparing what we have been taught and what we've been told from others against what the Scriptures teach. This is what the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. They didn't just take what they heard because someone that they respected told them. They didn't take just what they heard because it sounded good and reasonable and right to them. They only accepted what they were taught because it aligned with what the Scriptures taught. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, these, those in Berea, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scripture daily to find out whether these things were so. They didn't take it just because the Apostle Paul had told them. They took it because it aligned with what the Scriptures taught. Not too long ago, Joseph and I listened to a, a call-in radio program where the truth was being taught, and someone called in and argued against the truth. And this caller was told from the Scriptures and shown the Scriptures that, that taught that what she believed was wrong. And at the end of the call, she said, Well, that's what you say, but I'm just going to go with what I think is right, what sounds good to me instead of what the Scriptures teach. If we're going to be on guard against false doctrine, we can't be dismayed or dis, uh, taken off track by what seems right to us. We have to go back to what the Scriptures teach. And so tonight, let's consider the doctrine of irresistible grace. Is God's grace irresistible? Truth has no fear of investigation. And we should not fear our the Scriptures being questioned and investigated. We want to make sure that everything we believe is what the Scriptures teach. And so let's look at this doctrine tonight to see it, what it, the Bible teaches us about the doctrine of irresistible grace. Here are what those who hold to this doctrine believe and profess. John Calvin, the father of Calvinism, the reformer John Calvin said this, There are those who attribute a government to God which consists in giving an impulse and general movement to the machine of the globe and each of its parts, but does not specially direct the action of every creature. It is impossible, however, to tolerate this error, for according to its abettors, there is nothing in this providence which they call universal to prevent all creatures from being moved contingently or to prevent man from turning himself in this direction or that according to the mere freedom of his own will. John Calvin said, God controls everything. That's important because as we go along, we're going to see that these people who hold to this doctrine of irresistible grace believe that God determines everything. He determines if you're going to be saved or if you're going to be lost. God controls everything in the world without any free will of man. That's what John Calvin taught on it. The Westminster Confession, Confession the Presbyterians, take this stand. 
in regard to the doctrine of, one say, or to, of irresistible grace. The effectual call to salvation is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed by it. The Presbyterians believe that God decides if you're going to be saved and he moves on you to respond to the gospel. But if he doesn't move on you and if he doesn't choose you, you won't respond to the gospel no matter what. It is God who chooses. The idea of irresistible grace, God chooses you or he doesn't choose you. It's God's choice, and if He chooses you, you can't resist it, and if He doesn't choose you, there's nothing you can do to be saved. That's the doctrine that we're examining tonight. The Westminster Confession goes on and says this, God from all eternity did unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. God has chosen who He wants to be saved, and there's nothing that man can do about it. Here's what Edward Hiscock in the Standard Manual for Baptist Churches says. He says that regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind, that it is affected in a manner above our comprehension by the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel. So God chooses you or He doesn't choose you. But if He chooses you, then He's going to move on you in such a way that you will involuntarily respond to the gospel. That is beyond you. If God chooses you, you will involuntarily respond to the gospel. It's irresistible, irresistible grace. If God chose you, then when you're presented the gospel, you will respond. There's nothing that you can do either to choose or to reject the gospel. That's what the Standard Manual for Baptist Churches says. David Steele and Curtis Thomas in their book, The Five Points of Calvinism, Defined, Defended, Documented, said this. Whoops, I'm one slide off here. Let's see. They, it says this. Although the general call of the Spirit never fails to result in the conversion of those to whom it is made, this special call is not made to all sinners, but it is issued to the elect only. The Spirit is in no way dependent upon their help or cooperation for success in His work of bringing them to Christ. It is for this reason that Calvinists speak of the Spirit's call and of God's grace in saving sinners as being efficacious, invincible, or irresistible. For the grace which the Holy Spirit extends to the elect cannot be thwarted or refused. It never fails to bring them to true faith in Christ. Do you see it? God chooses, and if He chooses, you're going to have faith. His grace is irresistible. And so God is in the business of picking whom He wants to be saved and who He wants to be lost. And if He chooses you to be saved, there's nothing you can do to resist Him. I hope those quotes help to understand what is being taught by those who believe in this doctrine of irresistible grace. God chooses, and if He chooses, you can't resist it. You're going to be saved no matter what. It's closely related to the other points of Calvinism in the TULIP doctrine, as it is referred to, the five points of, of Calvinism. They're all interrelated. And so this doctrine of ir irresistible grace is uh, connected with those, and it leads itself to some of those other false doctrines as well. Well, what about that? Let's consider what we've read from these various uh, proponents of the doctrine of irresistible grace, and let's compare it with what the Scriptures teach. First off, we need to understand from the Scriptures 
that if this doctrine of irresistible grace is true, it's going to force a lot of contradictions with other scriptures that may be referenced. If the doctrine of irresistible grace is true, it will force contradictions with the Bible. If the Bible is inspired by God, and it clearly is, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If the, if the Bible is from God, which it clearly is from 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, then there can be no contradictions. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The entire Bible's from God, God's not, or the sum of your word is truth. If the Bible's from God, God's not going to say one thing on one page and then contradict it on the next. It is going to be unified, and it is unified. God's word is without contradiction. So we need to make sure that any interpretation that we have of God's word is likewise without contradiction. We cannot interpret one page in such a way that it forces a contradiction with the next page. And if we're going to hold to this doctrine of irresistible grace, then it will force contradictions, and we're going to see that as we go along. First off, we see that if the doctrine of irresistible grace is true, then it will overrule men's free will. You heard it in those quotes, didn't you? That if God chooses you, then you have no choice but to accept the gospel. In fact, Edward Hiscock said that your response to the gospel will be involuntary. Sort of like the doctor, you know, using the hammer on your knee and you just kick him. You can't help it. Well, that's going to be the same response that you have to the gospel. You can't help it. When you present the gospel, you can't help but accept it. That's what they say. That overrides and overrules man's free will, which the scriptures are very clear that men have free will. Notice uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning of verse 15, Moses and the Israelite, or Moses is sending the Israelites into the promised land. And he's giving them this instruction as they go into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over uh, the Jordan to go in and possess. Moses is setting two alternatives before the children of Israel, isn't he? He says he's setting before them life and good, death and evil. In other words, they needed to decide. Do you want to line up on God's side or do you want to line up on the false god and the false idol's side? They had to choose. They had to decide. Moses' instruction makes no sense if God's already decided that for them. If men don't have a free will, why would Moses even waste his breath? Moses should have said, you're going into the land of, uh, of Canaan, and you'll do whatever God decided you're going to do. It would have been that short. But they have free will. They have choice. Moses was clear on that. How about Joshua's famous invitation to serve God in Joshua 24, verse 15? In Joshua 24, verse 15, Joshua, in this famous address, said, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, 
whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said the people needed to choose. Choose. Who are you going to serve? You make the decision. Decide if you're going to serve God or the false gods, the idols. Now, if this doctrine of irresistible grace is true, and the quotes that we read are true, and John Calvin's quote is true that God is controlling everything, Joshua 24 verse 15 should read like this. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, um, oops, let me get to the next slide here. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, God chose for you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, God chose we will serve God. That's not how it reads, is it? God didn't choose. The Israelites had to choose. God is not overriding and overruling our free will. And finally, if this doctrine is true, then Jesus' encouragement is pointless. In John 15, verses 6 and 7, John 15, verses 6 and 7, Jesus says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be doesn't chosen that for us. If God's grace is irresistible, then I want to tell you it overrules men's free will. Furthermore, tonight... We need to understand from the scriptures that God's grace has been throughout time resisted. God has presented salvation to people throughout time. He's presented and offered His grace to people throughout time. And it was up to men to accept it or reject it. And many times it has been rejected. Jesus, Jesus wanted to show grace. And Jesus' grace was resisted. In Matthew 23, Matthew 23, verse 37... Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus came to save the Israelites. He wanted to save them. They rejected him. Jesus wanted to show grace, and they rejected him. He uses the imagery here of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings. And if you've never seen it, it's a beautiful thing. When a hen hatches out those chicks out of the egg, she's talking to those chicks before they come out of that egg. They know her voice. And once they come out, they're helpless little creatures. It is her job to raise those chicks. And any time that she senses danger, she talks to them with a voice that they understand. And they come running to her, and she squats down toward the ground with her wings out, and they duck underneath their mother. And every now and then you'll see a little head that pokes itself out from that, that, those feathers. But they're under her, their mother being protected. And that's what Jesus wanted to do to the Israelites. But when he spoke to them, they didn't come and get under his wings. They rejected him. They resisted his grace. Doesn't sound at all like the quotes we read, does it? That if God chooses you, you will involuntarily respond to the gospel? Jesus didn't say it was that way. They had rejected him. I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit's uh, grace has been rejected as well. In Acts chapter 7, 
in Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's sermon that ended up costing him his life. They got really mad when Stephen said this in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. The Holy Spirit wanted to, to teach the Israelites and teach the Jews about God's saving grace. They resisted it. They resisted it. And finally, the Father. God the Father wants to show grace as well, and it has been resisted throughout time. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, speaking of God the Father, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's will is not that so-and-so be lost and so-and-so be saved. If this doctrine is true, if the Calvinist is true, God's in the business of deciding. But this verse clearly says that God wants all to be saved. God's grace is rejected because it is clear from looking at the world around us that not all men are going to be saved. So God's grace is rejected. The scriptures are clear on this. In Acts chapter 13, in Acts chapter 13, after Paul and Barnabas have been rejected by the Jews, notice what Paul and Barnabas say in Acts 13, verse 46. In Acts 13, verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, though we turn to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas didn't say, you know what, it's a shame. We wasted our time talking to you because God had already decided that you weren't going to respond to the gospel. And so we're going to go to the Gentiles because maybe they will involuntarily respond to the gospel. That's not what they said, is it? Who got to decide whether they were going to accept the grace of God? The listeners did, didn't they? They had rejected. They had deemed themselves unworthy of everlasting life. God's grace has been and continues to be Resisted. The scriptures are clear on that. Furthermore, if God's grace is irresistible, I want to tell you it forces God to be a respecter of persons. If God is choosing you and He's not choosing me, then He's a respecter of persons. He's chosen you to be saved, but He's chosen me to go to hell, then God is in the business of being a respecter of persons. We could look at several passages to show that this is not the case, one of those being Romans chapter 2, verse 11. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 tells us there is no partiality with God. God is not a respecter of persons. And if this doctrine is true, it forces God to be a respecter of persons. And furthermore, if this doctrine is true, it denies that God wants to save everyone. It is God's desire to save everyone. As we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and to be saved. Furthermore, in 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we read, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If God chooses that He wants somebody to be lost, does God really fit the description that we read here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9? There's an obvious contradiction, isn't there? God doesn't want anyone to perish. God wants all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And in Titus chapter 2, 
in the passage that, that Joseph read for us. Notice this, that God's grace is available to all. Titus chapter 2, beginning verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live right, soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. God's grace is available to all. All will not accept it, sadly. It can be resisted. The doctrine of irresistible grace simply is not true because it forces contradictions. It overrules men's free will. It, it contradicts the facts that we see in the Bible, that God's grace has been resisted. It forces him to be a respecter of persons, and it ignores and denies the fact that God has said that he wants all to be saved. It simply is not in harmony with what the Scriptures teach. To conclude tonight, I would like to spend a few minutes looking at some passages that those who believe and hold to this doctrine will use in an effort to made this up out of thin air. There are passages that they will go to. They haven't just made this up out of thin air. There are passages that they will use in an effort to defend this doctrine. I want to look at them carefully with you tonight and see what uh, these passages are really teaching. We won't be able to look at all of the passages that those who hold to this doctrine will use, but we'll look at some, hopefully, that will help us to understand where they're coming from and hopefully give us uh, some tools that we can use to help answer those who might hold to this doctrine. The first passage that will be used by those who hold to this doctrine, perhaps, is Acts chapter 16, verse 14. In Acts chapter 16... Verse 14, turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 16 because we're going to want to, as we examine passages that people use to support false doctrine, we want to first, before we do anything else, stay in the context of the passage that's being referenced because it is very, easily, very easy to take a passage out of the context and try and prove something that it doesn't, that it doesn't teach. And so the first thing we want to do when we're presented with a passage that may look like it's supporting a doctrine that we don't think is true. Let's look at the context to make sure that we're taking it in its context. The passage in question is Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Paul is in Philippi teaching. And Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And so there it is. The Lord opened Lydia's heart. That sounds like a little bit like this idea of irresistible grace, that God's going to choose who he wants to respond to the gospel. And he chose Lydia, he opened her heart, uh, and therefore she was saved. She experienced the irresistible grace of God. Well, if that's true, then we've got some challenges. Look at the passage, look at verse 13 beginning. On the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Well, we see here about Lydia before the Lord opened her heart. She was already someone who was interested in serving God. It says before she opened, before the Lord opened her heart. I'll tell you what we learn from this is that the Lord did open her heart. 
He opened her heart through the gospel when she heard the gospel. God didn't choose that Lydia was going to be saved and the other people who heard weren't going to be saved. No, her heart was opened when she heard the gospel and she received the gospel. Furthermore, she responded and obeyed. And those who hold to this doctrine of irresistible grace would say that her obedience is irrelevant, that she would be saved anyways. But this passage teaches us the necessity of obedience. When she heard the gospel, she believed. I believe her heart was opened through the gospel. Another passage that will sometimes be used to show that we must have God's irresistible grace if we're going to be saved is, John, or is Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. If you want to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Again, the idea that if God chooses you, then He's going to move on you in such a way to secure your response to the gospel. That He's going to open your heart. He's going to move on you in some way. He's going to take your wicked, evil, and carnal heart, and He's going to change it into something that can respond to the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And so the idea is that you were born with this corrupt, debased, uh, depraved heart, and you couldn't respond to the gospel if you wanted to. That God has to move on you in some way to give you a new heart so that you can respond to the gospel. And they would look to this passage in an effort to prove that. But let's stay in the context and drop down to verse 18. In verse 18 of chapter 8, we see that, Paul is encouraging those who are living the way that they are to remain faithful. In, Luke 8, in Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul is encouraging them. Don't turn back to the world. Don't give up. Don't turn your back against the gospel because these people had chosen to be faithful to God. And what then does Acts, Romans chapter 8, verse 7 teach us? It teaches us if we're going to be carnally minded, if we're going to be fleshly minded, if we're not going to give heed to the things of God, not be spiritually minded, then we're not going to be saved. It doesn't tell us that God is choosing what kind of mind we're going to have. It's just telling us that if we're going to have a physical, carnal, fleshly mind, we won't respond to the gospel. It's up to us to determine what kind of mind we're going to have. Another passage, John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This passage really, really sounds on the surface, if you take it out of its context, like God is deciding who He wants to come to him and who he does not want to come to him. John chapter 6, beginning of verse 44. John 6, beginning of verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That sure sounds like irresistible grace, doesn't it? Nobody can come unless God decides he wants to draw them. Keep reading, though. Keep reading. It is written in the prophets... And they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father 
comes to me. Who comes? Well, only those that God draws. And how does He draw us? Through the gospel. He says here, those who have heard and learned from the Father come to me. This is how we're drawn to Him. It's not that God chooses and draws us to Him. We need to understand that very clearly. We uh, also need to compare John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, with a passage in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 tells us again how we're drawn. As we compare this idea that everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me, tells us that we've got to hear the gospel. The gospel is what's going to call us. The gospel is what's going to draw us. Romans chapter 10, verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? What draws you? Is it because God somehow moves on you and, and, and works on your heart in such a way that you have to respond? No, the gospel is what draws us. Look down in verse, 10, uh, verse 17. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It's not some direct operation on your heart where you will involuntarily respond to the gospel. No, the gospel is what draws you to God. It's not an irresistible grace kind of thing. And then back in John chapter 6, if you would, drop down to verse 65 for another verse. In John chapter 6, verse 65, notice what another passage is used that they will sometimes turn to in an effort to defend this doctrine. John chapter 6, verse 65. And he said, Therefore I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Ah, oh, there you go again. God's in the business of choosing. And unless God grants and chooses you, you can't be saved. Well, we need to remember that John chapter 6, verse 65 is in the same context as John chapter 6, verse 45 that we just looked at, where we are drawn to God by learning the gospel and responding to it. This is what draws us to God. And John 6, verse 65 says, No one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by the Father. We couldn't come up with a way to get to God by ourselves, could we? Unless God had given us this, the power of God unto salvation, unless he had given us the gospel, we couldn't come to him. But he has granted us the ability to come to him through the gospel that he has presented to us. The doctrine of irresistible grace simply is not true. God's grace can be resisted. We need to understand what the scriptures teach us about this important doctrine, uh, this important subject, and not be misled by the false doctrine and the false teaching that God's grace is irresistible. And since to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, are we responding to the gospel? You know, God is not going to force us to be obedient to Him. He's not going to force us to be the people that He wants us to be. We have to decide, based upon what we've heard in the gospel, are we going to submit, or are we going to be stiff-necked like those people that Stephen talked about who resisted God? Are you going to submit? Nobody's going to force you. You, you have free will. You need to make the decision 
that you're going to be faithful to God and you're going to serve Him. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to Him, if you've not decided to serve Him, there's been no better time than right now to do so. And if we can help you in any way, will you let us know while we stand and sing?